One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called a zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. He went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there, and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. Amen. Good morning. Where do you come from? I mean, where do you really belong? That's a tricky question for some of us, isn't it? I mean, maybe you've lived in the same house on the same street for all of your life. Or maybe you're more like me and moved around a lot and you're not really sure where home is. Well, if you're a Christian, then you can know that your citizenship is in heaven. That's one of my favourite verses, that we belong in God's new kingdom. But maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you're tuning in this, into this and and you're just kind of curious about Christianity, but you're not really committed yet. Well, if that's you, then, then you're actually like the man, a man called Theophilus, who this book, this book, this story of Luke's gospel was dedicated to. Luke was a doctor and he wrote it to a man who knew some things about Jesus, but who wasn't 100% sure. Maybe he was sitting on the fence about things. Maybe he, I don't know, wanted to be a part of it, but wasn't 100% sure and has his reasons. Well, what are your reasons? If you're not yet committed to Jesus, to following him, if you're not committed to being part of his new kingdom, I wonder why that is. I wonder if you could write those questions down and try and work through them. Maybe it's that you do quite like Jesus, but you're not really so sure about his people, about his kingdom. Well, if that's you, I imagine you'd be in the same boat with a lot of Christians. We look at the church over the centuries, in fact, in recent days and weeks, and see the horrors that people who who claim to be Christians, have done in the name of the church, in the name of God's kingdom, and it, it should make us weep. It's really horrible to see those kind of things. And so we look at Jesus and we say, yes. And then we look at the church and we say, I'm not quite so sure. Well, these stories, this reading that we read earlier on, is all about Jesus's kingdom. It's all about what Jesus's kingdom should be, because, because it focuses on the king and what he shows the kingdom is because it's something that's built around him. So we're going to look at these stories and have a look at and learn a few things about God's kingdom. So we'll see today a few things. 
that, that God's kingdom is built on a trustworthy foundation that you can rely on it. It's something you can actually trust and get involved in and be confident about. It's solid. You'll see that everyone is welcome in this kingdom, that it's a giving kingdom and it's deeply countercultural. It's an upside down, not very common sense kind of kingdom, but in a good way. Okay, it's like that, like I said, because Jesus is like that. He's trustworthy. He's welcoming. He's giving. And he is radically overturning what we see as common sense. Okay, so solid foundation. That's what this kingdom is built on. Jesus prays in the first story in um, chapter 6, verse 12. The first story I want to look at, Jesus prays all night. That's the only time that it's recorded that he does that in the New Testament. Jesus prays all night because he's got a big decision to make. He's going to choose the leaders of the church. He chooses 12, 12 apostles. Why 12? I mean, we're so used to him having 12 disciples, we don't really think about it much, but 12 because back in the day in the Old Testament, there were 12 tribes, 12 patriarchs, 12 men who had become the fathers of the people of God, the people of Israel. And Jesus is picking 12 new ones, 12 men who will be the foundations, the pillars of a new people, a new tribe, a new nation, who will be God's people. And what's their job? They're apostles. Well, that means that they're messengers of the king. They come with, with a message, which is a king has come. They come with a gospel. The, that word, it means good news, but also kind of momentous, world-shattering news. And the, the news is a king has come into the world. And let us tell you all about him. Let us tell you what he said and what he did. And that's their job. They're not just 12 lads who made it up years afterwards you know, who found these stories about Jesus and embellished them and, and invented a religion. No, these are 12 men chosen by Jesus. 11 of them were trustworthy. We'll talk about the other one later when we get to him. But these are men who Jesus chose after a night in prayer, who then became eyewitnesses, who passed down to us what he said and what he did. So if you want to know about Jesus, you can go and study Luke's gospel and the other gospels. And the letters and writings of the New Testament, which were written by eyewitnesses, people who met Jesus. And you'll find as you do that, that they're a solid foundation that we can trust and rely that the foundations of this kingdom are good because Jesus put them in place. Just one little note, especially if you're a Christian, if you're following Jesus, are you following his lead when it comes to big decisions? I mean, what do we see here? Jesus has a huge decision to make. And even though he's the son of God, he spends all night in, in prayer, extended prayer, bringing his father into that decision. He doesn't just do it mechanically, you know, list of pros and cons and then choose the one that's the longest. No, Jesus comes and listens to his father, prays all night and makes that decision about the future leaders of the church. It won't be long before we as a church are choosing new leaders. So will you learn to pray? Will you make your decisions like this? Not just on your own mechanically or by your intuition, but if you're following Jesus, will you follow his lead? And when you've got big decisions to make, when we as a church have got big decisions to make, Will you follow him in praying and praying and bringing our Heavenly Father into those decisions? Okay, so this is a solid kingdom, one that's reliable. There's also a kingdom that welcomes all kinds of people. This is just a quick one, but if you look through the names of the disciples that Jesus picks for the 12, they're really varied fellows. They're rich and poor. They're from all over, all over the country. They are politically, I mean, at odds with each other, or they should be. Matthew was a tax collector. We heard his story in previous weeks. He was in bed with the Romans, taking the, the Israelites' money and giving it to their oppressors. And then you get Simon the Zealot, who was 
like a freedom fighter almost. And they're together with Jesus. That's just an expression. It's a picture of what the church is. A foundation that's mixed together, held together by Jesus. Uh, A group of people who are the most unlikely of friends. So there's another question for you, especially if you're part of the church already. Do you have unlikely friends in the church? People who you sit down and think, if it wasn't for Jesus, I'm not sure I would spend any time with these people. Or do you just hang out with the people who are a bit like you, who you find, I don't know, some stuff that's common apart from Jesus, who you're just a bit comfortable around? Well, we should be a kingdom of people who are full of differences. Who are we as a church? We're the king's people, a new nation among the nations of the world, a community united around the King Jesus. So we're on a solid foundation. We're welcoming, or we should be, and we're a giving kingdom too. Because look at this, many people come flocking to Jesus from all over, from Jerusalem, from Tyre and Sidon. Those places are a long way away on foot. So why do they come? They come because Jesus gives. Jesus gives words, teaching which is life-giving and magnetic. They come because he gives healing. Power flows out from him and heals them all. He's enormously generous. He's marked by compassion. He's gracious. He comes not to be served, but to serve. He comes as a doctor to heal the sick. I mean, to heal people in every way we could be healed, in body, heart, mind, and soul. He comes to feed us and give and give and give. So who should we be? Who should his people be? What should his kingdom look like? It should be a giving kingdom, a gift economy, if you're into economics, not a marketplace where we trade and kind of buy and sell. And not that that's necessarily wrong, um, but, you know, with God, it just doesn't work like that. With Jesus, it doesn't. He gives and gives. And we should be people who give, who take and receive his words as he gives them freely, who take and receive his works as he gives them freely, and then who feed on them and then pass them on to other people, who, who we give gifts of his words to. His words are on our lips. We give gifts of good works to in the power of his spirit. That's who we are, a gift economy. Not a market where we buy and sell and expect stuff in return, but where we give, expecting nothing in return. Lastly, and longestly, we're an upside down kingdom. Did you see that in these next really beautiful, but also also quite terrifying words? These beatitudes, they're called blessings and woes. This is where we see that Jesus' kingdom is unlike anything else. I mean, usually when something new comes out, in our own world, it's only for the people who can afford it, at least at first, or, you know, for the, for the people in the exclusive members club, for the people at the top of the tree, the rich people first, and then the crumbs eventually trickle down to the poor. With Jesus, he flips it the other way around. I mean, you could think of an example of this, just one I spotted recently, was Disney's new film. It, uh, it looks amazing. It's called Raya. It's about a, a princess from Southeast Asia somewhere who goes in search of the last dragon. But you can't watch it yet. Unless you go to a cinema, I don't know if there's any open in our country, or pay an extra pretty significant premium on your already, the thing you already purchased Disney Plus account. It's, it's a new film, but it's not available for everybody yet, only for the people who can pay. With Jesus, his kingdom isn't like that. His kingdom is a place where the poor are at the top table, where they're the ones who are honoured and blessed, and it's the rich who should be sweating about whether they really belong. What's going on here? Let's have a read of these again and, and just 
just let them amaze us again. Blessed, Jesus says, looking at his disciples, that's really important, says, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And then verse 24, but woe to you who are rich, for you've already received your comfort. Blessed are the poor and the hungry and the weeping and the hated, but woe, that's, that's an expression of kind of painful pity. Woe to you who are rich and well-fed and, and laughing and have good reputations. What is going on here? Well, Jesus is speaking, turning over, overturning common sense, isn't he? This is what Jesus's upside down kingdom is all about. This is where, I mean, think about it. When was the last time you used the word blessed? Maybe it was the last time somebody sneezed around you, which has taken on a kind of extra importance these days, hasn't it? But okay, not sneezing. When was another time you used the word blessed? It's probably if you're a Christian or American is where something good happened to you, isn't it? A baby's born. Oh, so blessed. And it is a blessing, isn't it? I don't know, you have a, a wonderful gift given to you. Oh, it's such a blessing. Or you get a new job, or you move to a lovely big house, and it's such a blessing. And those things are blessings, but what does Jesus call blessings here? I'm not sure I've ever heard anybody else say, when they're poor, oh, I'm so blessed. Or when they're suffering, oh, I'm so blessed. Or when they're crying, I'm so blessed. It's just not something that we do, isn't it? It's overturning the way that we usually think. It's uncommon sense. So why is it this way around? Why does Jesus' kingdom work like this? Is it that they're blessed because they're poor? Is Jesus saying, actually, it's quite good when you have nothing. It's quite good when you're sad. It's quite good when everybody hates you. Well, no, he's not saying that those things are good in themselves. Look who he's speaking to. This is really important. He's speaking to his disciples. He's not saying that just being poor or getting yourself hated by people is a ticket into heaven. He's speaking to specific people who've been hated, who have become poor, who've wept, who've been made hungry because they followed him. Do you see that? He looks at his disciples, at the people who have followed the Son of Man in verse 22, and he says, when people hate you because you follow me, when you're deprived because you follow me, when you're weeping because you follow me, you're blessed, you're full, you're rich. How can that be? Well, because something is coming. I mean, just imagine what it would have been like for Jesus to say that. Imagine the disciples sitting there at his feet and behind every crease and wrinkle in their, in their weather-beaten faces is a story of loss. Loss because they followed him. They lost businesses. They lost families, some of them. They lost really good jobs. They lost reputations. They lost happiness in many situations because they follow Jesus. And Jesus looks at them and says, trust me, even when you're going through those things, because you're with me, you're blessed, so blessed. If you really understood it, you would be dancing and leaping for joy. That's what he says here, isn't it? Because of your reward, because of what's coming to you. A reward in heaven. I mean, he doesn't lay out exactly what that is yet, but just read the rest of the Jesus story and you'll see what that means, this, this future. It means a new heaven and a new earth. It means new bodies, right, bright and clothed in immortality. It means restored relationships. It means no more tears. It means no more doubting, no more faith, because we'll see him face to face. We'll have God himself. We'll be his inheritance and he'll be ours. That's the future. That's your reward. That's the thing that outweighs any loss in this world. It's worth more than you can imagine. 
So when you feel that loss right now, in amongst a world that, that doesn't think much of Jesus, that of course is going to reject you just like it rejected the prophets, when you feel that, you should rejoice because you know someday soon it'll be over and Jesus will, Jesus will bring us home. But it's not just in the future, is it? Did you see it? It's not just pie in the sky when you die, but as Jonathan Thomas, our old pastor, used to say, it's steak on a plate while you wait. The blessings are for you right now, aren't they? They're not just blessed will you be, even though you're poor right now. They're blessed are you. They're present tense things, aren't they? So you're blessed now. Why? How? Well, because you've come under into the orbit of Jesus Christ. This isn't just a future reality for you anymore if you're a Christian. The future's broken into the present because it's in the presence of Jesus that the kingdom of God is. And even though now he's died and risen again and he's back in heaven, he's given us his spirit. His spirit is with us. He's drawn near to us. He rules over our lives right now with graciousness and compassion. So so if you're a struggling Christian, if you're somebody who's poor and empty and weeping and struggling and hated by people that you know, will you make that, will you take those things and make those things help you to be ready to receive Jesus's gifts? Will you take those things and, and let them make you ready to be filled by his love, the hatred of other people, to give you a taste for his unstoppable love. You see, we need to be learn we need to learn to be filled with the better bread. Where Jesus said himself just a couple of stories ago, that man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of Jesus. We need to be people like Mary. Mary, Jesus' mother, right back at the beginning, who whose cousin says to her, Elizabeth says to her, Blessed is she who has believed what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. She hadn't had a baby yet. Barely any of what was promised to her had come true, but she believed God. And then she sang herself, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my saviour, because he has remembered the humble state of his servant. He's brought down rulers from their thrones, but lifted up the humble. He's filled the hungry with good things, but sent the rich away empty. It's a big theme in Luke's gospel, that the poor come to sit at the top table and the rich are the ones who should be worrying about where they really, whether they really belong. So if you're committed to Jesus, if you're following him, don't be put off when things don't go well in your life. Don't think that God has abandoned you. That's what we usually think, isn't it? Especially if you listen to people like Joel Osteen or other people who claim to be Christian preachers when they say things like, you should be living your best life now. You should be living in total victory in every area of your life. Well, when you hear people like that, saying stuff like that, switch it off, throw the book in the bin and listen to Jesus instead. Listen to Jesus who says, even when you're weeping, you're blessed. Even when you're empty and hungry, God has not abandoned you. It's not that your faith is weak. It's not that you've missed out on the good life for some reason. No, that's a sign of what's to come for you. If you're following Jesus and you're going through hard times, be like Mary, trust his words and rejoice. Rejoice, even though the future isn't quite here in all its fullness just yet. Jim Elliot, you've heard his story a few times from me before, said this, he's no fool who gives what he cannot keep. This life now, you can't keep it. 
So don't hold on to it. Jim Elliot says, he's no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So don't be a fool. Don't try and hold on to it like these next people do. Because this is an upside down kingdom that takes the poor and makes them rich. But that takes the rich and, and hopefully helps them see that really they're poor. How does that happen? Well, Jesus says, woe to you who are rich, who are well-fed, who are laughing, because, because a reversal is coming for you soon too. This is Jesus pitying, painfully pitying people and giving a warning to people, let's be honest, people like us, who are really quite wealthy in the grand scheme of things. These are really unsettling verses, aren't they? Especially for me. I mean, I'm pretty wealthy. I own my own house. I have a car. I have all sorts of other things that fill me. I, I don't really remember the last time I was really hungry. I laugh a fair bit. So is this saying that that we're in danger if, if we enjoy life at all? Well, no, it's not saying that at all. This is not Jesus saying that, you know, there's a blanket ban on fun and pleasure. It's not Jesus attacking happiness. It's a warning about, this is really important. Listen to this. It's a warning about looking for life in the wrong places. It's not a blanket ban on happiness. It's not kind of final proof that Christianity really does ruin your life. <laughs> it's the opposite. It's Jesus saying, don't look for happiness and life and satisfaction and treasure in the wrong places. Don't be disappointed when there's life on offer. The Bible isn't always negative about money and possessions. Solomon, the great King Solomon, was given them as a gift. There were plenty of wealthy women you'll find in these stories who looked after Jesus and his disciples who hosted the early church and used their wealth for good. Jesus goes to banquets and, and is filled and presumably laughs and enjoys a good time with people. He tells lots of humorous stories. So what is going on? Well, what's going on here is that people look for comfort, for, that's in verse 24, consolation, for salvation in these things, these glittering treasures in this world. That's what Jesus says is so wrong and so damaging and so dangerous. That the source of their consolation, their comfort, what they're looking forward to in life is food and riches and jokes and good reputations. And those things aren't bad on the, in themselves, but when you make them your hope, when you make them everything, then they're really dangerous. That word consolation or comfort that we read in verse 24 comes up in an earlier story when an old man called Simeon is in the temple and, and he's presumably been afraid of death and he's prayed to God and God has promised him that he would see the consolation of Israel. That's back in chapter 2, verse 25. He'd see, he'd see the one who would begin to put everything right before he died. And he takes up Jesus in his arms and he says, here he is. This is the one. My eyes have seen the consolation of Israel. Now I can die in peace. And so these people that Jesus is talking about here, they find their consolation not in Jesus, but in all sorts of other things, in being filled by other stuff, in relying on, in finding their satisfaction in anything that isn't Jesus, anything in this world. It's like a toddler who, I don't know, three, four o'clock in the afternoon, goes to the cupboard, climbs up without mum and dad knowing, and eats half a packet of cream crackers because they're hungry and they want something to eat. And mum and dad say, no, you shouldn't do that. Because when dinner comes around, that meal, that healthy meal full of vegetables and proteins and all the stuff that you need, when that comes around, you'll be full. 
and you'll push it away and then night will fall and you'll wake up hungry. It's like that. You're so full of the stuff of this world that you just don't really want Jesus anymore. You've got no appetite for him. That's the danger of being rich. That's who Jesus pities. It's as if he says, be careful. You feel satisfied and secure now without knowing me? Well, one day soon, night will fall. The curtains will be drawn on your life. And then you'll be hungry forever. Don't fill yourself up on Jacob's cream crackers. I'm sure they're tasty crackers. They are tasty crackers, aren't they? But, you know, that stuff of life that kills your appetite for real satisfaction. Woe to you if wealth is all that you're here for. If you've made your own DIY Jesus, if money is your Jesus, if food is your Jesus, if being a good religious person is your Jesus, the thing that you use to get you security in life. Ask yourself, be honest, are those things really all that good? Do they really give you comfort deep in your bones? I mean, think of those horrifying moments that we experience when you're lying in your bed at night, you can't sleep, and then you realise that you're mortal. Do you ever have those moments where you know that you're going to die and it's quite terrifying? Well, in those moments, you've wrapped your bedclothes around you. You're thinking someday soon somebody else will wrap your, their, your grave clothes around you. Death is real to you in that moment. Does your cash comfort you? In your experience, do you get out of bed and jump for joy because you know you're going to see your car on the other side? No, it's not that at all. But Christians do leap out of bed when they think of death and dance for joy in the face of it because we know we'll see Jesus on the other side. That's what Jesus says here. If we could look into his face and see him say, blessed are you when hard times come because you know your trust is in me, your hope is in me. If we could see him say, you're blessed. If we could see him open his heart to us and take these words to ourselves, it would help us deal with those darkness, deal with those fears, wouldn't it? Don't, when those moments come, um, don't just pick up your phone and let the blue light of distraction wash away those worries. We should deal with those worries. When we're facing down death, we should be what old Simeon was. Take those worries to, to Jesus, take them to God. And imagine Simeon there holding little baby Jesus in his arms and saying, yes, this is my comfort. I can die in peace now. This baby in my arms is my comfort. I can die in peace because I know that one day he'll grow up. One day he'll hold the world in his hands. He'll have died to take away, to swallow up all that darkness. And so I'm safe with him. I can know comfort in him. I can die in peace because I know I've been filled with Jesus. How can we trust that Jesus will follow through on all of these promises? Because he's been there. Jesus has been, has been to the cross. He's become poor, left his home above. He's become hungry, 40 days of starving in the wilderness. He's become the man of sorrows who knew what grief was. He's become the person who was hated and rejected and insulted and excluded to the point of going to his death on the cross. He did that for us, to swallow up darkness, to plant seeds of the new creation that bear fruit in our lives. So do you want to be a part of it? That's what Jesus invites you to today, to come and be a part of his kingdom. The kingdom that will come is broken into today. The kingdom that's solid, a foundation you can trust because it's built on him. 
it's a, a kingdom for all kinds of people, for anybody. Whatever we've done, whoever we are, he welcomes you. It's a kingdom that's a gift where he gives, where we receive, where we're changed and where we pass that on to other people. It's a kingdom full of surprises where those who are empty are filled. Will you be one of those people who comes to him with empty hands, who admits that we've got nothing, nothing to bargain with, and just say, Lord, I accept that gift. Will you give me yourself and take all of my sin? Will you make me yours and give me this hope? You see, it's this kind of kingdom. It's belonging to this people that will make you generous, radically generous because he's filled you up. It'll make you fearless because what, what have you got to lose when he's given you the world? It'll give you comfort and indestructible joy in the face of anything. So come and be a part of it. Amen.